Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to have all of you here at Plum Creek this morning, as well as anyone watching online. And I also want to jump in and congratulate all of our 2021 graduates. I love watching that video. You guys were some cute kids. Uh, But I want you to know that we love you, and we are praying that you will step into the future that God has for you. And I want you to never forget that following Jesus is the most important thing you can do in life. Well, I want to jump into this morning's sermon, and I want to give you a quote from the Old Testament. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Listen to this. It says, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, this is our key verse for today. Uh, It's an important concept, and it's absolutely true. Now look at the first half of that statement. People look at the outward appearance. This is what human beings do. We judge others based on external characteristics. I saw an example of that this week when I was doing some research on the country of Kenya. And down in Kenya, there's a tribe of people known as the Maasai. Now the Maasai have this interesting ceremony for young men who are coming of age. This ceremony marks the time when a boy makes the transition from junior warrior to senior warrior. It's also the moment when a man becomes eligible for marriage. So I have another picture to see here, and in this picture, there's an important contest going on. These two young men are jumping up and down as high as they possibly can. And do you know why they're doing that? Well, they do that because off to the side... There's a group of young, single women, and they're watching this. They're evaluating these guys based on their performance. They want to see who can jump the highest and with the most grace. And the warrior they find the most attractive is the one that gets the most airtime. So based on Maasai tradition, if you can jump really high, you're probably going to be a good husband. And that's an example of a group of people who are looking at the outward appearance. But what about us? Well, we may not agree with the Maasai approach to finding a spouse, but we do this too. We evaluate others based on external characteristics. For example, uh, I want to show you a a picture here uh, with three faces. Now, I want you to look at this picture and decide which of these faces looks like someone who is trustworthy. I'll give you a second to look and decide. Okay, do you have one? Uh, Most people, when they see this, they would choose the face on the right. Uh, Some choose the one in the center, but hardly anyone chooses the face on the left. That guy just looks a little shady, doesn't he? Well, what's the actual truth? In real life, which of those three people is the most trustworthy? Well, I can say with confidence that it's a three-way tie because they're all the same person. The the face in the middle is the original, and then the other two were altered with face-morphing technology. Uh, They were uh, making that person look more or less trustworthy based on facial features. Uh, This was a research project by the American Psychological Association. So we can't just pick on the Maasai people today. This is a universal principle. And let's go back to our key verse. To some extent, all people look at the outward appearance. But the second half of that statement is also true. The Lord looks at the heart. 
Now, how do you feel about that? For some of us, it's comforting to know that God doesn't care so much about your outward appearance. But then for others, this is kind of a scary thought. Because at this very moment, God is looking past your outward appearance, and he sees directly into the depths of your soul. So there's no way you can hide. There's no way you can pretend that you're better than you really are. And that's an intimidating thought. But I want you to know that this verse is actually very good news. And we need to dig into Scripture to see just how good this news is. 1 Samuel 16.7 is a quote within a much larger story, and we're going to look at that story today. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going on a journey through the life of a king named David. And I've got to tell you, I am really excited about this. Now, you may not realize it, but David is the most prominent character in the Bible outside of God himself and Jesus specifically. David shows up all over the place. In the Old Testament, we get the story of his life. And then in the New Testament, we see that David played a significant role in God's mission to save the world through Jesus. Over and over again, the New Testament writers point back to David and they connect the dots. They're saying, do you see what God has been doing? He's been working for centuries to bring this master plan together. So let's jump into the story. Uh, we started with 1 Samuel 16, 7, but we need to back up to the beginning of chapter 16. So read along with me. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, and I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So we've just met several characters here, and I want to give you a little background. First, let's talk about Samuel. Who is this guy? Well, Samuel was a leader in the early days of Israel. The nation of Israel had been set apart by God. They were his chosen people. And not long after God's people entered the promised land, there was a, su a succession of leaders known as judges. Uh, you might recognize some of their names, uh, names like Samson and Gideon. And during this period, the judges were not considered kings because at this point, Israel was ruled by God directly. So the judges were individuals used by God to help lead the nation. Well, Samuel here is the last one of these judges because the people of Israel decided they wanted a human king. And why? Well, because all of their neighbors had a human king, and they just wanted one of the, what their neighbors had. And Samuel warned them. He said, this whole king idea is not going to work out as well as you think it will. But the people were persistent. So a king was chosen, a man by the name of Saul. Now, across the entire nation of Israel, Saul was the man who most looked like a king. The Bible says he was more handsome than anyone else in Israel. He stood literally head and shoulders above all the other men. So based on looks, Saul was the best choice. Based on character, though, not so much. Uh, Saul was very focused on his image. He was very concerned with public opinion. And he would cut corners as a way to, to gain popularity or control. In the beginning, though, 
Saul actually was a decent king, but then things go downhill very quickly. Eventually, Saul blatantly disobeys a direct command from God. Here's what happened. Back in 1 Samuel 15, God commanded Saul to kill and destroy a violent people who were known as the Amalekites, including their king, a man named Agag. However, Saul disobeyed God in several different ways. Among other things, Saul allowed King Agag to live. So that's when God says, Saul, it's over. You are no longer fit to rule my people. And God tells Samuel that it's time to choose a new king. And Samuel is really upset about this because he's been with Saul from the beginning. Samuel had anointed Saul as king, set him apart as God's man. But things didn't work out that way. And now God says to Samuel, stop moping around. We have lost a king, but we're not losing the kingdom because I have someone else in mind. And that's when God sends Samuel to find a new king in a little village called Bethlehem. So let's read on. 1 Samuel 16, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they saw him. They asked, do you come in peace? So what's that about? Why are the elders scared of Samuel? Well, remember when Saul disobeyed that direct command from God? There's a connection here. After Saul fails to kill King Agag, Samuel steps in and he picks up a sword and he just hacks that guy to pieces, kills him. So uh, naturally, word gets around that Samuel is not a guy that you want to mess with. And that's why the elders of Bethlehem are a little scared when he shows up. But in verse 5, Samuel replied, Yes, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So they come together and they make a sacrifice to God. But Samuel does not forget the main reason he came to Bethlehem. Uh, he is there to find the man that God has chosen to become the new king. So then in verse 6, Samuel saw Eliab. That's Jesse's oldest son. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Uh, now, Samuel is doing what all of us do. He's looking at the outward appearance. And based on appearance, Eliab looks like perfect king material. But now we've come to verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, so we've made it back to our key verse. And you know, a lot of people agree with God's approach in theory. We hear this all the time, right? What you see on the outside is not really what matters. What counts is the person you are on the inside. It's a pretty common message. The world may say that in theory, but that's not how the world operates in practice. For example, when you were a kid, do you remember picking teams for kickball or basketball or whatever? Uh, the captain stands there, and he's looking over the group, and the captain is trying to figure out who to pick next. And I guarantee you that person is not looking for someone with the best inner character. 
They're looking for speed or strength or coordination. That's how the world works. They may say your heart is what matters, but real life doesn't always play out that way. So how does God's approach play out in real life? Well, we already saw that God looked at Eliab and said, no, he is not the one. And that makes sense when you get to the next chapter. We find out that Eliab is negative and critical, and he treats David with very little respect. Eliab is pretty lacking in the character department, and God is not going to go there again. But that's okay, because Jesse has lots of sons. And they move on down the line. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, eh, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. But, so Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So that little brother is, of course, David. And we don't know his exact age at this point. It's likely that he was between 10 and 15 years old. What we do know is that David was so young, his father, Jesse, didn't even bother to have him come in from the fields and meet Samuel. But then when David did show up, he's a good-looking kid, right? He has a fine appearance, handsome features. So hold on a second. We know that God looks at the heart, but he can also see his outward appearance. And was that a factor in God's choice? Did he have an advantage because of his looks? Well, actually, no. That's the whole point. Uh, God didn't pick David because he was handsome, but he also didn't disqualify David because he was handsome. From God's, appear, uh, from God's perspective, appearance doesn't matter either way. Uh, that's so different from the human approach. Think about it. In school, a girl who is unattractive might be picked on because of her appearance. But at the same time, a girl who is especially pretty may be ostracized precisely because she's pretty. So you can lose either way, right? There are so many different ways that we judge others based on appearance. But let's try to figure out what God is doing here. If David was not chosen because of his appearance, what was it? Why did God specifically choose David? Well, we get a big clue back in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, Samuel is speaking to King Saul here, and he says, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So this is why God directed Samuel to anoint David as king. It, it was about the heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And does that phrase mean that David's heart was clean and pure and he did the right thing all the time? Well, absolutely not. If you know just one thing about David, you know about his confrontation with a giant named Goliath. And we'll get to that next week. 
If you know a second thing about David, you know that he was guilty of adultery with a man named, or with a woman named Bathsheba. And that was just the beginning of a long list of David's sins. But we're going to see throughout this story, David had many failures, many sins, but he kept returning to God. Again and again, he would confess his sins in total remorse and humility, and he would once again put God at the center of his life. In the end, David truly was a man after God's own heart. And so we get to this pivotal moment in Scripture. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So Samuel did what he came to do. God's choice was now official. And that's the main story for this morning. And you know, there are two obvious takeaways, at least two obvious takeaways from this story. First, don't base your value on your appearance. And second, don't value others based on appearance. And that word appearance, that can mean several different things, right? It can refer to your physical appearance, how you look. Uh, We saw that in this story, but we also see it in our time. We are living in a culture that is obsessed with physical appearance. And that's only gotten worse in the age of the internet and social media. You know, when you get on social media, it's like you become your own PR agent. You decide what image you're going to put out there. And a lot of times you want to portray yourself in the best possible light. But of course, other people are doing the same thing. And if you start playing that game, it's easy to compare yourself with others and feel like you don't measure up. Sometimes, though, it's not about your physical appearance. It's more about how successful you are. Uh, You may feel better about yourself or worse about yourself based on how much money you make or how much stuff you have or the accolades and awards you've collected at work or at school. But there's one more way we can define appearance. That word could also refer to how good you are, how good you look. You know, it's, it's sad, but it's true. The external goodness of a person may not match up with the reality of what's inside. Uh, this morning, as we came together here at church, this may have been our biggest temptation. We can walk, walk around church feeling inferior or superior based on the perception we have of others. Sometimes we size people up and we think, Man, it just looks like they've got it all together. I I can't compete with that. Then other times, we look at somebody and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that. But we we have to be careful here. When God sees someone, he sees a heart condition that may not be obvious on the surface. We don't always know the state of a person's heart when we see someone at church on Sunday morning. And with that in mind, I want to do a little exercise. Um, We did this a few years ago, but it's helpful to go back and do some self-evaluation now and then. So I'm going to describe four different boxes, and I want you to put yourself into one of these four boxes. Now, you got some space in your note sheet to draw this out, and I am giving you permission to doodle right now during the sermon. I want to help out the doodlers because I am one myself. But in the first box, I want you to draw a face, 
That face represents your appearance. And then also draw a heart, which, of course, represents your heart. Now, here in this box, the appearance is good, but the heart is a mess. This person is hiding some things. Sort of reminds me of Saul. He was pretty good at crafting a public image, but on the inside, uh, things were pretty messy. So ask yourself, in all honesty, is it possible that you are right here in box number one? While you think about that, let's move on to box two. Here we have consistency. The appearance is good and the heart is also good. At the time we meet David here in 1 Samuel 16, we would probably put him in this box. Now, box number three is pretty rough. Uh, this person, their, their heart is a mess, but it's also clear on the outside. Everybody knows it. And nobody wants to be in this box, but the truth is it happens. And if that's where you are, it's okay to be honest about that. Now, box number four is really interesting. Uh, This person, on the outside, looks like they're in a bad place. But on the inside, their heart is good. Now, seriously, do you think this category even exists? According to Jesus, yes. Box four is real. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable about two different men. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisees were considered holy and righteous men, but most people thought of tax collectors as a bunch of greedy traitors. But Jesus tells this story, and in the, in the parable, both men went to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stood by himself, and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like those robbers or adulterers, And I'm not like this tax collector over here. I'm one of the good ones, and I know you see that. But on the other side, the tax collector stood by himself, and and he wouldn't even look to heaven. He just beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus ends this parable with a shocking conclusion. He says, I tell you the truth. It was this tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went home justified and made right with God. I'm sure that would have been a big surprise to a lot of his listeners. So in our diagram here, who was the tax collector? Where, where would we put him? Well, he's in box four, right? Because he definitely had issues. Other people knew it, but he went home justified before God. That's amazing. And then what about the Pharisee? What, what box would we put him in? Well, box one, right? That man had a habit of doing a lot of good things, but he did not go home justified before God. And uh, this should make all of us stop and think. I have a question for you. In the Bible, out of these four boxes, which one does God come down on most harshly? It's box one. And why would that be? Especially when box three is a mess on both the outside and the inside. Well, it's a simple reason, really. If you are in box two, three, or four, God can work with you um, because you're being honest. But in box one, you're not presenting your real self to God. You're projecting a false image, an outward appearance, while you keep your real self out of reach. So, what box did you put yourself in? As for me, 
I want to be very careful that I don't land in box one. And it's so easy to drift in that direction. And this is tricky for preachers. I, I think about this a lot. When I stand up here on Sunday morning and I talk about the things of God, I need to ask myself, am I letting other people think that I'm better than I really am? Uh, I am very serious when I say I absolutely don't want to do that. Uh, the truth is, my heart is not always where it should be. At the same time, though, what do I do? Uh, should I get up here and read a list of all my failures every week to make sure I'm not giving a false impression? I, I don't believe that's the way to go. But I will tell you this. I am far from perfect, and there are people in this church who know that very well. And we all need people like that, right? Every Christian needs a brother or sister who knows the state of your heart. But here's another question. If all of us fail, you and me and David too, is there anyone who really has a good heart? Well, in one sense, no. We've all sinned. In many ways, our hearts are a mess. In another sense, though, it is possible to have a good heart. You see, there's really one correct way to see yourself. The only accurate frame of reference is to base your value on Christ. You know, hundreds of years after the time of David, another unlikely king would come out of Bethlehem. He's not the person we would have expected. The prophet Isaiah said he had no majesty or beauty to attract us to him. He was not a normal king. He did not come to this world to rule over an earthly kingdom. He came to die. Jesus came because he knew that you and I did not have a good heart. He knew that because of our sin, our relationship with God was broken. And that relationship could never be restored unless someone paid the penalty for our sin. And because Jesus loved us so much, he went to the cross and he died. He took our punishment on his shoulders. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And do you know what that means? It means if you have begun a life-changing relationship with Jesus, God has given you a new heart. Your sins have been forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And when God looks at you, he sees a good heart because he sees Christ in you. That's what grace is. That's so important to remember. Uh, you will never create a good heart in yourself by trying hard. Uh, you'll never be good enough on your own. Your goodness and your identity and your value must come from Christ. So let's be honest with God. And let's be honest with each other. Uh, we don't want to be a church full of box one people. So let's refuse to follow the pattern of Saul. Saul focused on his public image, and he did not allow God to work on his heart. And when God works on your heart, uh, it can be painful, but it's always good. He does that when it's necessary. And I know right now, some of us here are not in a good place. You might look good from a distance, but inside you're struggling. You got pain in your heart or bitterness or addiction, 
a, a deep pattern of sin, maybe depression. Uh, maybe maybe uh, you've made some bad decisions lately in the area of sexual purity or materialism and greed. But I want to, I want to encourage you. God knows your heart. He already sees it. And he wants to transform your heart. Christ has the power to do that, to, to give you a new mind, a new heart, a new way of life. It's okay to be broken. But when we're honest with God, we don't have to stay broken. At the beginning of this sermon, I said that 1 Samuel 16, 7 is actually good news. It's good news because Jesus frees you from the need to prove yourself through external characteristics, image, and performance. He provides the only way to be accepted by God. You won't be accepted by trying to look good. You won't be accepted through some kind of effort. But you can be accepted by God when you allow Jesus to change your heart. And then you follow where he leads. You know, Jesus may lead you to do some difficult things. He may ask you to do something that could harm your public image. In fact, I, I can guarantee that. He will ask you to do some humbling things, but you got a choice to make. You can focus on your outward appearance, or you can let God deal with your heart. He already sees it. So go ahead and give it to him. Let's pray. Father, you see the reality right now. You see what's going on in our hearts. Lord, help us to, to have the humility to admit that, to be honest with you and honest with others so that you can do in our heart what you want to do, so that you can change us for your glory, so that others can see your power to transform a life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.